Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Just speaking his mind or going a step too far, we take a look at the fallout from President Higgins' housing comments. I think he's only calling out what's the real truth. I don't think there's any reason not to say it. He's only saying what everyone knows. It's the elephant in the room. The President shouldn't have... Uh, he has his own opinion, but keep it to himself, sort of. What will summer holidays cost you this year? Tourism chiefs are grilled over sky-high hotel prices. It is fundamentally wrong. And it's exploiting Irish people. And later, warnings of a devastating famine that could affect millions in the Horn of Africa. Trocra CEO will join me live. You can get in touch on Twitter with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Speeches by Irish presidents are, by definition, rarely newsmaking, but that changed in a big way when President Michael D. Higgins let rip on housing policy in this country. Let's remind you of what he had to say yesterday. I, I have taken as well to, to speaking ever more frankly in relation to housing because I think it is a great, great, great failure. It isn't a crisis anymore. It is a disaster. Well, the reaction in the political world was mixed. The opposition jumped on the comments with Mary Lou Macdonald saying he gave voice to the reality of the ongoing housing disaster. On the government side, some were trying to say, well, not very much at all. It's not appropriate for me at all to engage in any debate uh, with the president, nor do I intend to do so. Um, so I take any questions in terms of issues that people are going to talk about. Do you about. accept his description of the housing situation as a disaster, Well, As I said, no, I'm not going into a debate with the president. The Thornish, though, was more vocal, saying this morning that, uh, quote, I think some of what he said was true, quite frankly. Earlier, we asked people in Dublin whether they agreed with the president and whether he was correct to say it publicly. Things aren't changing. Things are going higher and higher in prices. And people like me wanting to buy houses and trying to save for um, deposits and stuff, it's just, it's not going to work. I think he's only calling out what's the real truth. I don't think there's any reason not to say it. He's only saying what everyone knows. It's the elephant in the room. The president shouldn't have, uh, he has his own opinion, but keep it to himself, sort of. It's not uh, ethical for him to to say that, you know. I think when the crisis is so bad, somebody should speak up. You know, uh, it's great that the Ukrainians are looking after, but the Irish people deserve the same treatment. I think it's a hard job, and I think, um, but th- there's ha- things have to be said to, to make change, so. Well, no, because, like, babe, do something about it. You're the one in a position of power. Like, what can the layperson do? If you're telling me you can't do anything, that doesn't give me much hope, so. 
Well, no one short of an opinion. Lots to dissect with this topic. And let's bring in our panel. I'm joined by News Talk presenter Shane Coleman, Green Senator Pauline O'Reilly, Labour Senator Marie Sherlock and Lorcan Sir, Professor of Housing at the Technological University of Dublin. And I'm also joined on Skype tonight by Dr Laura Cahalan, Senior Law Lecturer at the University of Limerick. Um, I'd like to come to you first, Laura, if I, might, if I may. What is the President actually allowed and not allowed to say or do under our Constitution? And has he technically done anything wrong here? Well, the Constitution is a little bit vague on this, so it doesn't really go into much detail on what he is or is not allowed to say. Um, it does specify that if he wants to make an address to the nation, that he's required to seek the approval uh, of government. But obviously, this couldn't be constituted um, an address to the nation. Um, but if you look at the way the relationship between the government and the president is set up, um, it is quite clear that the presidency is not intended to come into conflict with government. Um, and that's why you have things like the, the fact that the president has to seek approval before making an address. The president even has to seek approval before he leaves the state. Um, so that is the kind of relationship that is set up under the constitution. And saying that, there are two main roles that the president has under the constitution. There's the role of the head of state, which is mainly ceremonial role, and there's the role of guardian of the constitution. And under that role, he exercises some very important constitutional duties. Now, you could argue that since Mary Robinson's presidency, there has been an additional role, which is acting sort of as a mouthpiece for the people or a voice for the people. And subsequent presidents have um, used that sort of new role, which has been developing. I think President Higgins probably has used it more than um, the, the, the two presidents that came before him. And I think this is fine when it, it, it stays on issues of sort of higher level principles. Uh, but where it becomes dangerous is where it comes into issues of policy. And that is because of the fact that the president does exercise those important constitutional roles, such as, for example, uh, a decision on whether to refer a bill to the Supreme Court before it's signed for a decision on its constitutionality, or in the case of a Taoiseach who may have lost his majority in the Dáil, the president can refuse um, a dissolution in those circumstances. So it's really important that the president is seen as being politically neutral and above the political fray, as they say. And if there's any sort of a suspicion that the president, you know, might come down on the side of one party or one policy or the other, it sort of erodes this idea of the president as an important neutral figure. So can the government do anything to rein in a vocal president if they don't really like what he's saying? Uh, can President Higgins, in this case, be banned from saying it? No, not really. I mean, I'm sure there will be conversations held behind closed doors. Um, it's part of the function of, of the Taoiseach to keep the president informed on matters. So I'm sure they will be having conversations and potentially this will come up. But you, you can only remove a, a president in Ireland for state of misbehaviour and that requires an impeachment procedure. And I don't think anybody would like to go down the road of looking at starting impeachment proceedings. And certainly these sorts of um, activities do not go far enough to, to require that sort of action. Okay, Laura Cahalan, Senior Law Lecturer at the University of Limerick and constitutional expert, thank you for joining us tonight. Well, to come to our panel on all of this, and I want to come to you first, Pauline O'Reilly, as uh, a Green Senator and being in one of the uh, parties in coalition. When you heard Michael D's comments, what was your first reaction? I suppose my gut reaction is that it very much aligns with a lot of our own thinking and our own policy, probably in the Green Party. And the question of whether 
it's constitutional or it's not. Um, I, I think that people are really looking at the fact that actually uh, they are speaking what a lot of people are feeling. So, I mean, I completely um, feel for people who are, you know, right now struggling to get houses. I think from our point of view, um, we did inherit a mess, as it were, when it comes to housing. Um, but actually, this is the most ambitious housing programme in, in the history of the state with four billion a year going into, into housing yeah. under, under you, housing you, you for all. Were, you and, were and, in government a decade ago. Well, well, absolutely. But I mean, it, th this is actually uh, a decade later. Exactly. And, and I think th that's the point that Michael D. But we haven't been in government today. Well, we haven't been in government for all that time. And actually, we are in government now and the changes are happening. But you so said that he wasn't. He, he, what he was saying was aligning with your policy. But in fact, you know, he was saying it isn't a crisis. It, it's a disaster. It's never been referred to. Um, by the Green Party, I don't think, as a disaster. And that housing and the basic needs of society should never have been left to the marketplace. Um, arguably, it's still being left to the marketplace in, in the way that the, well, the well, private well, investors well, are, are, are involved well, within said, this housing programme. As I've said, programme. four billion a year from the state is going into housing. And that's more than ever before. And actually, since the start of this year, there's 35,000 commencements. There's more people who are, are first-time buyers in the first three months of this year than, uh, you know, for a decade earlier. Um, so... I think that it's. I think that it is really important that we remember that things are progressing. Okay. Of course, uh, things progress much slower than and somebody think, who needs a house wants. Yeah. Um, but and it I is think important. Everyone who is on, who is waiting for a house or trying to get a house or in a paying sky high rents will fully understand that. Um, just to bring you in on that, Marie Sherlock, uh, Michael D. Calling it as a disaster and a great, great failure. The reason politicians perhaps won't disagree with him is because they know it's true. Of course, and he was absolutely spot on. The state is failing. The 3,000 children are going to bed tonight, homeless. The thousands of workers, like in Dublin at the moment, rents are over 2,000 euros. That's 70% of an average worker's monthly wage. And the, and the families who will never be able to buy in, in this country because house prices and the cost of land mm. has been so low. But the key thing yeah. here is that we shouldn't be surprised by the president's comments because the president, when he campaigned for re-election in 2018 and when he initially campaigned to be, uh, you know, to be president of this country, he wanted to be a voice for all people. And so many thousands of people in this country are affected by the housing. Do you think he overstepped the mark when we heard from um, Laura there on the, the constitutionality of it and um, whether or not, like, you know, his role being head of state and guardian of the constitution. And yes, he's been more vocal and, and seen himself as a voice of the people. But is that his remit? Well, hundreds of thousands of people in this country voted for him because he said he wanted to see sustainable communities built in this country. He wanted to see greater fairness. That, that was the campaign themes mm. that he ran on in 2018. And his comments yesterday were utterly consistent with that. Utterly, ultimately, his comments last night, I think, were reflecting what so many people are thinking out there. And they were absolutely necessary because necessary. I think people okay. are coming to us today and saying he's dead right. Uh, Shane, is it coming from the president that it reignites the fire on this, that essentially we've been talking about this housing crisis for so long, yeah. the language around it has become so normalised that this is maybe a necessary step? No, I don't buy that. 
personally. I, I don't think President Higgins' speech is going to dramatically change anything. I think everybody... Like, what did he say that we don't already know? I, there'll be a hullabaloo about this for a week and then we'll all Well, he move was calling on. out he was critical of government. Oh, he, yes, that's a different issue. Uh, and I think that, that is a problem. And I, I wonder um, if Marie was sitting here as a government uh, TD and, say, Dana was president and Dana was uh, interjecting on an issue uh, of, say, social policy... I wonder would the Labour Party be quite so keen on a president getting involved there. I think what Michael D. Higgins did was wrong. I, I think the president has to be above party politics. And, and Laura... The president has a mandate. Well, That's hang on, let me, sorry, just, let me finish the point. I didn't interrupt you. Laura uh, laid out the point very well. One of the key, one of the few key roles the president has is this issue of if the doll... Uh, is, is the power to dissolve the doll. That is a hugely important power, very rarely ever exercised. I think it's come up once uh, potentially in my lifetime, but who knows when it will come up again. And the president has to be, I think, to be absolutely above politics and but be seen not, to be above politics. Does the issue politics. of housing not go beyond politics in this country, Sorry, Shane? Like, do you know what? Like, it's you a know basic what? need, isn't None it? Of things, no, you know what? None of these things... The but, Constitution but this, doesn't it, it matter. It is a basic no, need no, that no, is being ignored yeah. for so many people well, in this sorry, country. Whether it's been ignored or not, we can have a debate about it. I, look, and I'd far rather talk about solutions than uh, describe what word we can use for it, whether it's a disaster or crisis. I'd much rather talk about solutions, the kind of stuff that, that, that Lorcan does. But it, 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 the point is, it, the president should not be going there. And we can, you know, you can say these should things. Not be a, vo a well, voice no, of just, the, the, the as, point as is about the, the, why the Constitution is really important is because it, it, we only realise its importance when things go astray. Look at what is happening in the UK at the moment. We have a British government that is willing to tear up legislation. Look at what is happening in the US. We had a president who was willing to try and overthrow an election. That is why these constitutional issues are important and is why it is important we stick to precedent. And, you know, you can say these things are such and such is more important. I don't agree. There has to be certain principles. And I think the president should be above politics at all times. Okay. On Party the, politics at all times, I should say. Okay. Uh, I mean, the argument around that again is, is, interestingly, he said it's not a crisis, it's a disaster. A disaster essentially is something of, of man-made, isn't it, Lorcan? Um, do you believe he used the right words there? Oh, I think it's good to see, like, whether, I, I'm no constitutional expert, uh, but it's good to see someone of his stature and, you know, someone that people look up to expressing it like this. I don't believe it's a crisis because a crisis, to me, is something unnatural that we couldn't help. This is something that is, it has been made for the last 20 years, in fairness, through successive governments. Um, so I, I, what Dr. Cahillan said in Galway was interesting that he shouldn't be commenting on policy. I think he probably feels, I'm not going to put words into his mouth, that this is beyond policy. This is a systemic issue that has gone wrong for the last, particularly the last 10 or 12 years. You know, even in the last five years, alone, we see as housing output has gone up by 45%, something like that. The amount of houses coming on the market for people to, to buy has gone down from nearly half of all housing every year to about 28%. So just over one in four of all houses that we build every year is now coming to the market. Um, so that would suggest that you know, he sees this as, a, as a, an issue far beyond the policy, but much more deeply rooted in society. What was interesting to me, and, and I, I don't like getting political about this because I stay very neutral politically, was Leo Varadkar's comments this morning that he kind of shrugging the shoulders and saying, well, this has been going on for ages. Like, it's nothing to do with them. Uh, like, it's nothing to do with the current government who have been in power for a long time. That's what, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Um, he was speaking um, on uh, Pat Kenny on News Talk and he said, while the government is responsible for fixing the housing crisis, it's not responsible for the construction bubble. 
and the housing crash from 2008. Now, it's similar to what Pauline has had to say um, here tonight. Like, it's not our fault we inherited this. Well, every policy that, that has been brought in since about 2015, 2016, particularly Simon Coveney and Owen Murphy to an extent, has made housing less affordable, not more affordable. And most of those policies have been brought in since 2017. And this is when we see the output going up. But all the output, the increase in housing output, is taken up by an increase in social housing, which is fine, except we're buying two for every one we're building. And building to rent, very expensive niche luxury products for people on six-figure salaries, whereas the amount of housing that's coming into your estate agent window for sale every year is going, going down. Less than 6,000 houses arrived, new brand new houses arrived in the market last year, and first-time buyers in Dublin in the last five years are down by 30%. Second-time buyers, movers, are down by 46%. Uh, so there's nowhere for them to go to because we're not producing the stock at the same time as housing output is rising. Like, you couldn't make this stuff up. And it's all to do with pol bad policy decisions over the last, particularly the last five years. Uh, what do you think of that, uh, Marie, when you hear that? Because Labour has been accused, of course, of, of being in government at a time. Yes, it was post-crash, but a lot of the groundwork was done for, for what's happening now and how the market has since developed. Well, Labour was in government when obviously the, the crash had just happened. And as, 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 as Lorcan described there, decisions made in 2016, 2017, the introduction of built to rent, the introduction of co-living, which thankfully um, has, been, uh, has been banned now. Um, uh, you know, it's decisions made over the last six years when we had, uh, when, when our public finances were generating surpluses in this state, that we have squandered the opportunity to seriously turn Turn around the, the 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 housing shortage, and yet the decisions, even as late as last year, we had a, a major outcry because there was going to be an institutional investor purchasing homes built in Minuth in County Kildare. Well, this has been going on in Dublin for years, and a government decision was made that. Uh, that, that, that the uh, stamp duty, 10% stamp duty is applied to the bulk purchase of homes, but not to apartments. So are, are apartments not homes themselves in Dublin? So the key issue is it's been policy after policy. And, and the area where I know best in Dublin, one, Dublin, seven, Dublin, three, you know, people talk about if we've more supply, then house price will go down. Well, when you look at this, it's not a problem of supply there. We've got about four and a half thousand mm. co-living, student accommodation and built to rent going through the planning system under construction. And there's only about two and a half thousand yep. conventional apartments. And the key issue is because of the type of supply that we have, we're not going to provide affordable homes for people anytime soon. And it's all Bottom because line, of policy yeah. decisions that we made in recent years. Bottom line, Pauline, like, are the Greens comfortable with that in government? Can they really be? When, when, you, when you hear now what, what, what Lorcan has had to say, his view on it, um, what Marie is echoing, what, what a lot of people would think about supply and, and affordability for those who desperately need it, are you really happy Look, with the I, policy? I, I mean, I have to take issue with the, the government that the current government has been in for a long time. The current government hasn't been in for a long time. Uh, there's one particular party that was in government uh, for a long time and they were in government um, when some of those decisions were made. And Housing for All is a different policy. And so we are seeing uh, some changes as a result of that. But as I've said, you know, these changes are not going to be overnight. But, but construction okay. numbers are up. First-time buyer, buyers are up. Um, social houses, that, that's up. Cost rental. We, and so there's a mix do... in the marketplace that wasn't there before okay. and that now is. But I think vacancy and dereliction is something that the president did mention. And that, I believe, is something that, you know, is very close to, to, to my heart. That's okay. the thing that really uh, does have to be done. Shane, uh, something that... Um, 
Michael D said it's the mad speculative money that is destroying yeah. our country, which yeah. we are welcoming, which we shouldn't be. Is he right about that? Uh, look, possibly. Uh, I mean, it's a little bit simplistic. And, and, and my problem with the whole debate, and we've been talking here for, what, 10 minutes about it, and everybody's been talking about this for the last day and a half. I haven't heard one person talk about solutions. We're mired in, is he right to say it's a crisis? Who cares whether you use the term crisis or disaster? We all know well, there's actually, a huge problem now, there. I think Michael D. Higgins, I mean, we'll discuss it, did talk about shouldn't county councils be doing more? Shouldn't, you know, be, be looking at that, looking at the amount yeah. of state land? I, I mean, I, I'd love to have that and conversation. And how underused it is I mean, there's a, for there's building a, houses. There's a piece of industrial land very close to where Marie uh, Lorca and I all live, um, Glasnevin Industrial Centre, uh, Industrial Estate. That is perfect for redevelopment. Right beside the Lewis Line, right beside the canal, right beside bus routes. It's barely used. You could probably house 20,000 people there and it is sitting almost idle. And every day I look at it when I go past it and go, why isn't that being and developed? Why? I, I mean, I, I presume there's a myriad of reasons, but and we need to address those issues. And I think, I think we need to move beyond whether it's a crisis or a disaster, and you know, start banging a few heads together. Well, um, least, I mean, the government have banged heads together. The housing for all is the plan. Like yeah. that's the plan. Well, there are the heads yeah, the, banged. Uh, well, and that's what they uh, yeah, come up with. Yeah, and not enough heads are being banged quite, quite clearly. Can you consider <laughs> when you consider that state agencies we heard last week are being quite slow uh, in identifying land that that should be developed? Housing for all is, is not. That much different to the one that went before rebuilding Ireland. Both plans rely hugely on the private market to deliver the housing for it, and that's that's a fundamental error because the market is going to do what the market will want to do to protect itself. Naturally enough, and, and that's that was a problem that bedeviled rebuilding Ireland, and it's a problem that's going to bedevil housing for all as well because the focus now is on numbers. So the minister wants to get up to his thirty-three thousand uh, houses per annum, but there's no discussion about what type of housing they will be. And I know there because there, there, there is, and I'll tell you what the number is. I'll tell you what the target is for this year. So out of the, the 24,500 houses that are planned to be delivered this year, 7,500 are due to be houses coming on stream for sale. That's it. 7,500 out of 24,500. That's from the Department of Housing own officials, who are the real culprits in all this, to be really frank with you. Uh, so that's the level of ambition there, which is a very low So do ambition. you think, OK, so it's being described as a great, great failure, um, which many people do agree, uh, agree with insofar as, you know, the, the, the sentiment around it being a disaster. Um, can the Housing for All plan change that? And can it be, if you don't believe it can, can it be rescued? Yeah, I think at the heart of, of most housing delivery, so housing for all is about delivering housing and different types of housing uh, for different groups of society. The, the problem is it's putting the emphasis on the wrong type of housing. Now, behind housing delivery is planning policy. And the problem we have is very poor planning policy for the last 10 years, if not 15 years or, or more. And planning policy is determining the type of housing output we have. And it, because of planning policy, we're getting thousands and thousands and thousands of built rents uh, and very few houses for sale. And that's a problem around, and we don't need to go into it here, around density and high rise and land values uh, and all that kind of stuff. And so it's poor planning policy is driving poor housing outcomes. Uh, and that's a the core of it. But we also have to ask about like the determination of government and you know and, and I appreciate there are targets there but we saw the reports last week of 15, there's been sites identified for 15,000 houses and we're told it'll be 2026 before planning will even commence for those sites and these are, this is state owned land. Like there should not be a problem, we should, we should, we should move quickly, like uh, the 
all of the, of the government's energies <coughs> needs to be going into that. But, you know, we've made decision, decisions being made over the past year, even with regards to affordable purchase. You know, and we all sign up that affordable purchase okay. should happen, but it's set at just 20% below the market rate. Okay. So, you know, there's been government decisions made with regards to, uh, you know, what needs to be done that are simply flawed and will not deliver the type of housing that is required over all the long right. term. Look, we're going to have to take a short break now. My thanks to Lorcan, sir. Uh, coming up, skyrocketing costs are hitting Irish holidaymakers in their pockets. Tourism officials faced in Iraq this grilling on the issue today. The rest of the panel will be staying with me uh, and I'll speak to one of those industry spokespeople. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.
welcome back. Anyone who has tried to book a getaway in Ireland will know that prices are only going one way, and that's up. Be it hotel prices or car rentals, Irish consumers are feeling the pain in their pocket. But tourist chiefs were up in front of the Oireachtas Committee this afternoon, and the politicians didn't hold back. I don't accept, in particular as a sports fan, is if there's a big game in Crow Park or the Aviva or there's a concert in the Tree Arena, the exploitation that can happen in terms of rates going exponentially through the roof for hotels. It is fundamentally wrong. And it's exploiting Irish people. Well, I'm joined again by Shane Coleman, Pauline O'Reilly and Marie Sherlock. And also joining us now is Ona Mara Walsh, CEO of the Irish Tourism Industry Confederation. Ona, you're welcome to the programme. Uh, you are at that Iraq this briefing today. It was Shane and his colleagues giving you grief. Um, I presume you expected all this to happen. Well, yeah, I mean, it was an interesting meeting, let's put it that way. It was, it was, it was quite a grilling to a certain extent by the politicians uh, with a particular focus on Dublin hotel prices and a lot of last-minute prices that are in the Dublin market that are, to my mind, excessive. Now, we keep hearing about last-minute prices. What, what, what is a last-minute price? Like, how are you talking about if you're looking to book somewhere for tomorrow night? Or are you talking yeah, about or, or even, even in this the next three weeks? Even this month, I mean, before we even came into June, about 85% of Dublin hotel rooms were already booked out. So there's, there's an acute supply shortage and hotels are also obviously faced with the inflationary cost pressures that a lot of businesses are faced with. So prices have gone up. If you look at the last available monthly rates that we have, prices for Dublin hotels, for example, and I'm here on behalf of the broader tourism industry, which includes far more than just Dublin hotels, but prices in Dublin for the last month that we have went up 16%, which is quite a sharp increase. Explain that. So what was, the average, what was the average price of a hotel room in Dublin last month? €155, Euro, which was 16% up on the same month in 2019. That's the average daily rate. Um, so that's just so worth, worth that, keeping so in mind. So if you see a price on, on these various travel websites or booking sites and you call the hotel, you're going to get it for a lot lower. Because I don't think anyone would believe that the average price for a Dublin hotel room last month was €155. Euros. Well, well, it was. That's, that's, that's collated by an independent third-party source. So it's not... That's it's what not, people are paying for. That's so what, the, that's so the, the room the prices that the average, are out there and online are not necessarily what people are paying yeah, for. Yeah, the average daily rate that rooms were sold at last month were €155, Euro, which was up 16%, which, as I say, is a big jump, but it's largely explicable by inflationary costs. Sorry, oh, no, the, the prices that, that, that are in the media at the moment and people are discussing are a lot of the time last-minute availability prices. And I think, to, I, so I think a lot of them... prices are there, I th I think, but people aren't booking hotel exactly. rooms for €700 yeah. Euro a night I, I don't, they I, simply can't afford I, it. I don't think they should. I wouldn't be booking a but hotel room But that might mean the difference Euro. between... Um, going up to, to have to go to visit someone in hospital. You know, they, they are decisions I, I, that people small, are having to sm make. A small number of hotels and hoteliers in Dublin, only in Dublin really, are charging, to my mind, excessive prices. And they're doing themselves and they're do doing the wider hotel sector and wider tourism industry a disservice. And I, I, I think they should be called out for that. I think generally Irish tourism remains value for money. It's never going to be right. the cheapest destination. Okay. Um, but it, it, the experience that the consumer gets, whether it's the domestic tourist or the international visitor, generally tends to be quite strong. And we have to uh, maintain that and guard it into the future. OK, all right. Well, um, if those prices are very high, you'll face a big challenge in doing that. Shane, um, about this issue around hotel prices, We've been hearing about this for months now, really, mm -hmm. actually, it seems since we emerged from lockdown. Yeah, 
Um, it, look, I, I think Owen sums it up well. It, it's particularly a problem in Dublin. I've heard of Cork as well. And I have to say, anytime we as a family have looked to go away for a weekend, kind of last minute, a few days to go, you look at the prices and you just go, forget about it. It's not unique to Ireland, I have to say. I, uh, we also looked, uh, we eventually tried to get away after our first holiday with COVID, first weekend away. We looked at a number of cities, Amsterdam, a few cities in, in Italy, we were kind of shocked at the prices that we were quoted. We ended up not going because we but just Then you expensive. hear anecdotally, like, for example, a colleague even here was thinking about a weekend in Cork or Kerry and it was cheaper for him to book flights to Malaga and, and stay in a hotel there for a week. Yeah. So, you know, you are hearing that it's not simply a well, Dublin, not we're never simply going to a compete. Dublin issue. We're and never also, we're never going to it's often cheaper. It's often cheaper. On, on prices. That is just the economic reality. That's all, and that's always been, that probably right. has always been the case. But I think, I think the key thing here is the reputation of Ireland and ensuring that we have a sustainable business going forward. And I think that you're quite correct in that, you know, it is doing damage to others. Um, and there's no real reason why a last minute price should shoot up. I mean, it's still the same costs. To, to the hotelier, really, whether it's last minute or it's three months yeah, before. Th I mean, and there, there has been like this cr created expectation that if you book something last minute, that it's going to be that much. And really, um, you know, what businesses should be looking at, and I totally take on board, and I think that the costs have, you know, increased be because okay. of inflation. But what businesses really need is to have repeat customers. They know, do. And, and so hotels I know, in and general. With that, there were, there were lobbying, and I think your sector was lobbying for the, the 9% tourism rate to remain. Do you think that it should be guaranteed and that it should remain when we're seeing prices like this being offered to customers? Marie, what do you think? And, and that's the big issue here, that there's been no conditionality in the part of government towards the 9% VAT rate. You know? And look, I think we all understood the hospitality sector had a terrible, you know, were closed for most of the pandemic. They need to try and recover. But to see the prices that are being quoted at the moment, it is pure greed. And, you know, when I look at the average wage of somebody working in the hotel uh, industry at the moment, it's €443 Euros per week. Like, these are the lowest wages in the sector, uh, or, you know, across the whole of the economy. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing some hoteliers uh, charging enormous rates. So it, it's not going to the workers in those sectors, that, that, the, 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 these higher hotel rates. And I think there's a real issue here that government needs to actually look at well, what are they getting in exchange yeah. for their 9% well, VAT Well, it's rate. a good point, isn't it, Owen? What are people getting in exchange yeah. for that lowered VAT rate? I'm not here to defend the excessive prices that some, a, a minority of hoteliers are charging, but I am here to defend the industry. And it's the largest indigenous industry the country has. It's the biggest regional employer. So I think sometimes we have to look at it in the round. If you look at parts of the Wild Atlantic Way, there's precious little other um, economic development or regional balance, uh, but for tourism. So we have to be very, very careful that we don't withdraw pro-tourism and pro-business policies because of um, um, focus on particular Dublin Are you worried about stock. damage to the industry? Because we know that, you know, the prices that we saw, we got this rip-off holiday tag here from 2006 onwards for the prices that were being charged. Yeah. And that did hugely impact uh, absolutely. on tourism. We got into trouble in 2006, you're right. The value for money uh, ratings of Ireland fell. And then when the financial crash arrived, obviously travel and tourism globally suffered, but Ireland took much longer to recover in terms of a tourism perspective. We don't want to repeat that mistake. But I think we have to, it's quite nuanced, it's quite complex. There's 22,000 bedrooms in Dublin, for example. About 15% of those have been taken out of stock 
for by the government for you know Ukrainian refugees and, and humanitarian and reasons. hotels being paid handsomely right, for right, that. and hotels being paid handsomely for it and it's the right reason but remember that leaves about 18,000 bedrooms in Dublin and, and they're full Look, tonight and there's not there's not going to be 18,000 people in the lobbies of those hotel rooms okay. tomorrow morning complaining about the price because a lot of them have got it at the average daily rate as you can imagine it's a critical industry for the country it's critical that we see sustainable recovery that takes three or four years and we need the government to stay the course and the industry equally needs to make sure that it offers value for money at all times. Okay, and the other issue that could put people off um, travelling here are the price of car rentals at the moment. I think we can um, have a little listen to one government minister and what she had to say about all of that today. Uh, those rates are just un unaffordable for people, let's be frank, for tourists coming here, for people hiring cars. It's just not, it's not um, attractive for somebody to come here to holiday here with the price of, um, you know, car rental. It's just not, not feasible. And I think these are issues that I think the market themselves are going to have to address because nobody's going to be renting a car with those prices as they currently stand. Like we're hearing, Shane, about two and three thousand euro oh, for bonkers. a few days to yeah. rent a car. Bonkers. That like, would certainly put you off, you know, travelling around Ireland and seeing the likes of the Wild Atlantic Way. Like, I wonder, as a, as a country, are we more prone to milking it when times are, are good? I mean, I know owns defend your, that's your job, and, and and you make a compelling case defending the sector, but. I, I did get a sense last year. We holidayed like pretty much everybody else in Ireland the last two summers. I got a slight sense in some of the places where business was really, really good that uh, a lot of restaurants and hotels and stuff could take or leave my business. You know, you came in at a minute to 12 and it was like, no, sorry, or a minute to 11, breakfast is finished. Or the place is full for, uh, for restaurants with lots of tables. Our place is taking no cards, mm -hmm. cash only, and there's no ATM in the village. I got that vibe the last time, I have to say. And I just wonder when times are good, are we, uh, what's the, I'm mixing my metaphors here, but we, we're killing the golden goose and, and there's a real danger. Uh, for some reason, uh, car rental has always been extraordinarily dear in this country. But especially to, so, I of believe. Late, of late. Of late. Crazy and I think, I think one of the reasons behind it is that a lot of, uh, companies sold off their fleet um, when when we went into lockdown, yeah. and they were they were shut. At the same time, it's the likes of those companies. I presume were being supported by government. They yeah. should be back up. You don't have ready. to charge three thousand quid though either, though. You know, you can you can charge a reasonable rate. Yeah, it's a little bit like the hotels. It's appalling that you know there, there's just a culture there of charging an awful lot more and using the supply and demand uh, issue as an excuse. To, to be honest with you, I've heard the exact same cost of two 2,000 for, um, for a car in Spain. Um, so I, I, I think we have to remember that um, that there is inflation everywhere, but this is it's certainly in the car rental, it's beyond inflation to something else that is actually putting off people coming um, and leaving their own countries because they have to hire a car, wherever that might be. So it's not just Ireland, I think, to be fair. And I think, like, you know, in response to some of Shane's comments, like most people involved in the tourism sector, they're in small businesses. Um, they they keep they keep a local economy going in in very small towns all down the the Wild Atlantic Way, which is in my own constituency. Um, you know, so most people are, 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 are holding the their businesses in your own together over the last two years and it's been very uh, yeah. tough. Pauline, what do you make of the prices? Because there was a lot of anger and even tonight we're talking about Dublin hotel prices, but there's a lot and, and it was a lot of rural TDs who were getting at, um, who were getting at, at tourism bodies around the price of, of Dublin hotels. But anecdotally, this problem like is right around the country. Do you think that their, their better value could be had um, in areas of Galway and that people are indeed trying to recoup their losses. 
Well, I think that, uh, that that's quite clear from the averages presented from Owen that the, uh, you know, those high prices, they're the ones that hit the media. They're the ones that, that obviously politicians should, including government politicians, should be highlighting because they are outrageous. You don't think it's the reality? But I, I, no, it's not that I'm saying it's not the reality. I'm saying it's not everyone and it's not every hotel and it's not every B&B. Mm. Um, but, you know, like we, we do have the Hospitality and Tourism for, Forum and that has been meeting consistently with... Um, with those involved in the tourism sector, not just hotels, and that's uh, co-chaired by Catherine Martin and by the Taunashta. So, you know, and I think that they are certainly making it very clear that it's not sustainable for these businesses to continue like this and still have the same kind of support. That's the worry, isn't it, um, about how long all of this can can last and whether people just get fed up and decide not to go for the, the weekend away or if you're abroad, you're hearing about... Ireland's actually a really expensive place to holiday. I'm well, not going to bother. Well, this is, the, the I suppose, the, the really important thing here, the reputational damage. And, like, ultimately into the future, we're going to have to encourage more and more people to holiday at home because, obviously, we need people to be travelling less by, uh, by airplane if we're going to take our climate targets seriously uh, over the next decade. But in terms of, you know, these headlines that, you know, are, are appearing on such a frequent basis, you know, certainly they're putting people off uh, the yeah. notion of, of, and of and people will say, you know what? It, actually, it's more than just headlines. I was really trying to oh, yeah, uh, sorry, of course. A, a breakaway or, or, or do something or enjoy a family holiday. We haven't done it in ages and we, can't, we simply can't afford it. Um, briefly, Owen, do you think this situation is going to improve? What are you going to do with the, within the sector to ensure that it is good value for people. Well, I think value is critical. So, I mean, there can be a big focus on price and we're a high-cost economy. We know that. So, uh, prices are higher than we'd like, but that's largely driven by inflationary costs. It's not just an Irish phenomenon. It's an international phenomenon. Um, I think the thing to remember is that there's 20,000 businesses within the tourism and hospitality sector. The vast majority of those are SMEs right up and down the length and breadth of the country. The vast majority of those operate a labour-intensive business with very fine margins. Um, I think you mentioned uh, Minister Catherine Martin has been very supportive of, of, of the industry, as has the government during, during, during the dark times. 2022 is a strange, strange year. There's pent-up demand, there's deferred the demand, there's deferred demand from previous years. So it's a strange, strange year. I think, I think rooms will get cheaper, will get better value because I think there'll be more supply come on stream and that's ultimately going to moderate price. But I do think 2023 is going to be a more challenging year for Irish tourism. So it's incumbent oh on us, God. the industry. It was strange this year, it's more challenging next year. <laughs> oh, no. The industry, You're not leaving us with much ind- industry to, to, to offer as good a value for experience as possible and a comment on the government to partner with us on that. All right, OK. We'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Shane Coleman and Marie Sherlock and Ona Mara Walsh. Pauline will be staying with me after the break. How a crisis on the Horn of Africa has been described as the climate crisis happening right before our eyes. Welcome back. We now turn to the Horn of Africa and a horrific situation unfolding in Somalia, Ethiopia and Kenya. As many as 23 million people 
face starvation after the worst drought in four decades. That's according to DOCUS, which collectively represents the Irish Development and Humanitarian Organisations, calling for action on this. They say that one person is likely dying from hunger every 48 seconds in the region. And in Somalia, where famine is looming, 350,000 children could die by the end of the summer, according to recent UN predictions. Well, Pauline O'Reilly is still with me and I'm joined by Quiva Debarra, CEO of Trocra. You're welcome to the programme, Quiva. Uh, to come to you on this, um, what are the factors at play here that have led to this horrendous situation right now in the Horn of Africa? So the key causal factors are, number one, the conflict which, is, um, which exists throughout the region already, but also the, in the invasion of Ukraine by Russia earlier this year has compounded other factors. COVID and the long impact of the economic uh, crisis that affected the entire region has also created this crisis. But possibly the biggest one and the one of huge concern is climate change. So in the Horn and East of Africa, Ethiopia, Somalia, Kenya have been affected by the worst drought that we have seen in 40 years. Those countries have been affected by four successive failed rainy seasons and we're heading into a fifth one. Now, the region is used to dealing with drought. Drought is not uncommon, but the frequency and the intensity of these droughts, that is extremely uncommon. And it is entirely due to the effects of climate change. So it's the compound nature of these factors right before the invasion of Ukraine the number of people in hunger globally had doubled as a result of COVID conflict and the climate change crisis. But it's now gone up by another factor of about 50 million people. And Quiva, you've covered many famines, many droughts in many, um, you know, immensely troubled regions. How uh, different is this one? What are your people on the ground saying? So what we're seeing in, for example, Somalia, where the crisis is almost at its worst, is that people are dying literally every day. Trokra works in an area of Somalia, which is the size of the island of Ireland. We work with local organisations that provide health care to a population of 230,000 people. People are walking for days and days to reach informal camps near where our health centres are. And we're hearing stories such as one from a grandmother who arrived with two small grandchildren. She lost her daughter and four other grandchildren on the way. And that story, while it's tragic in itself, is not uncommon. This is happening almost all the time. People are burying their family members on the roadside as they walk to seek help. Pauline, we're not hearing an awful lot about this. Um, and I know that groups like um, and DOCUS and, and TROCA within DOCUS are, are saying, you know what, the international community needs to stand up, needs to do something about it. The Irish government needs to do more, uh, needs to speak out more. Would you agree with that? I think that, you know, I mean, Quiv is doing great work in Trogra and so many of the of the NGOs are. Um, and it is always a challenge to get um, media coverage of these issues. Uh, people, I think, are empathetic. I'm actually not talking about media coverage because yeah. we're obviously covering it here tonight, Pauline. Well, well absolutely. From, from but but, but in, in fairness, it is difficult to get. I mean, this really is a news programme for every day. You know, there are that many people who are at risk of dying. Um, and already in the world, one in five children under the age of five mm. die from malnutrition. And a lot of that is caused by climate change. And that means action here. It doesn't mean action on climate in other countries. It actually means taking the action here because 10% 
um, of the world, and that's the wealthiest 10%, they cause 52% of greenhouse gas emissions. Mm. And that's why we went into government, is to take those actions that are necessary, okay. is to become leaders when it comes to climate. And it is going to impact on everybody, but we are taking those actions, but we also need to financially support um, countries who are who are impacted because you've got to have both the mitigation and yeah, the adaptation. That's what I wanted to ask you um, about, Quiva, in terms of what the international community needs to do now. Ireland, for example, has a seat um, at a big table on the Security Council. What would you like to see or do you think the Irish government could be doing more um, with our position? Well, certainly there are a number of things that the Irish government could be doing a lot more. Now, the Irish government, in fairness, has been very strong at the UN Security Council on some of the gravest causes of famine, such as conflict and insecurity. But at the same time, Ireland is very outspoken around our own record on aid. Um, we committed nearly 50 years ago to reach the UN target of spending 0.7% of our gross national income on overseas development assistance. We have not reached that target. In fact, it has remained at roughly 0.32% for the last eight years. So we need to see an absolute concerted effort to increase that percentage in the forthcoming budget because a lot of the issues here are around a need for increased long-term funding. Yes, we need immediate funding to deal with this humanitarian crisis, but unless people are able to build their resilience to all of the future climate crises that are going to happen, then we are going to find ourselves locked into a cycle of devastating humanitarian emergencies. Um, also, there's, I suppose this has been exacerbated by food security um, surrounding um, the Ukraine war. Um, so politically, there, there, could be, there could be something more that could be done around that as well. It's not just, it's, it's resolving something that economically would hugely help the country. Well, I think we do need to see, uh, we do need to see grain getting out of Ukraine. And there is a, there is a massive problem with trying to, to create that, that, um, that channel for safe passage of grain out of Ukraine. And it's impacting on the entire world, but it particularly impacts on some parts of Africa, the very poorest people in the world. And we talk a lot about how it impacts on agriculture in this country. It does, but it really, really, you know, and this is the same with everything to do with climate um, and everything to do with food security. It always impacts the people at the pointy end, the people who are most vulnerable, that's children, and that's living, those living in the poorest areas of the world. They don't have the economies that are there to, as a backup plan. They can't put poor money in. Um, and, you know, when, when you look at those parts of the world that are the, the hottest, closest to the equator, uh, they don't, you know, when seasons can't be relied upon, mm -hmm. how can you grow food? Okay, that's it from us. Thanks to my panel tonight, everyone who joined us on the show. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram at TonightVMTV. From all the late team here, good night, do take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.